Random House Audio presents The Bluest Eye Read for you by the author, Toni Morrison Here's the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick, and Jane live in the green and white house. They're very happy. See Jane? She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat? It goes... Meow, meow, come and play, come play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See Mother, Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, Mother, laugh. See Father, he is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog? Bow wow goes the dog. Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog run. Run, dog, run. Look, look, here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane, play. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat. It goes meow, meow. Come and play. Come play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother. Mother is very nice. Will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother, laugh. See, father, he is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog bow wow goes the dog. Do you want to play? Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog run. Run, dog, run. Look, look. Here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane. Play. Here is the house. It's green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat. It goes meow, meow. Come and play. Come and play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother. Mother's very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother laugh. See father. He is big and strong. Father. Will you play with Jane? Father is smiling, smile, father, smile. See the dog bow, wow, goes the dog. Do you want to play? Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog run, run, dog, run. Look, look, here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane, play. Quiet as it's kept, 
there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. We thought at the time that it was because Piccola was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. A little examination and much less melancholy would have proved to us that our seeds were not the only ones that did not sprout. Nobody's did. Not even the gardens fronting the lake showed marigolds that year. But so deeply concerned were we with the health and safe delivery of Picola's baby, we could think of nothing but our own magic. If we planted the seeds and said the right words over them, they would blossom and everything would be all right. It was a long time before my sister and I admitted to ourselves that no green was going to spring from our seeds. Once we knew, our guilt was relieved only by fights and mutual accusations about who was to blame. For years, I thought my sister was right. It was my fault. I had planted them too far down in the earth. It never occurred to either of us that the earth itself might have been unyielding. We had dropped our seeds in our own little plot of black dirt, just as Piccola's father had dropped his seeds in his own plot of black dirt. Our innocence and faith were no more productive than his lust or despair. What is clear now is that of all of that hope, fear, lust, love, and grief, nothing remains but Piccola and the unyielding earth. Charlie Breedlove is dead, our innocence too. The seeds shriveled and died, her baby too. There is really nothing more to say except why. But since why is difficult to handle, one must take refuge in how. Autumn. Nuns go by as quiet as lust, and drunken men with sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. Rosemary Villanucci, our next-door friend who lives above her father's cafe, sits in a 1939 Buick eating bread and butter. She rolls down the window to tell my sister, Frida, and me that we can't come in. We stare at her, wanting her bread, but more than that, wanting to poke the arrogance out of her eyes and smash the pride of ownership that curls her chewing mouth. When she comes out of the car, we will beat her up, make red marks on her white skin, and she will cry and ask us, do we want her to pull her pants down? We will say no. We don't know what we should feel or do if she does. But whenever she asks us, we know she is offering us something precious and that our own pride must be asserted by refusing to accept. School has started, and Frida and I get new brown stockings and cod liver oil. Grown-ups talk in tired, edgy voices about Zick's Coal Company and take us along in the evening to the railroad tracks where we fill burlap sacks with the tiny pieces of coal lying about. 
Later we walk home, glancing back to see the great carloads of slag being dumped red-hot and smoking into the ravine that skirts the steel mill. The dying fire lights the sky with a dull orange glow. Frida and I lag behind, staring at the patch of color surrounded by black. It is impossible not to feel a shiver when our feet leave the gravel path and sink into the dead grass in the field. Our house is old, cold, and green. At night, a kerosene lamp lights one large room. The others are braced in darkness, peopled by roaches and mice. Adults do not talk to us. They give us directions. They issue orders without providing information. When we trip and fall down, they glance at us. If we cut or bruise ourselves, they ask us, are we crazy? When we catch colds, they shake their heads in disgust at our lack of consideration. How, they ask us, do you expect anybody to get anything done if you all are sick? We cannot answer them. Our illness is treated with contempt, foul black draft, and castor oil that blunts our minds. When, on a day after a trip to collect coal, I cough once, loudly, through bronchial tubes already packed tight with phlegm, my mother frowns, great Jesus, get on in that bed. How many times do I have to tell you to wear something on your head? You must be the biggest fool in town. Frida, get some rags and stuff that window. Frida restuffs the window. I trudge off to bed, full of guilt and self-pity. I lie down in my underwear. The metal in my black garters hurts my legs. But I do not take them off, for it is too cold to lie stockingless. It takes a long time for my body to heat its place in the bed. Once I have generated a silhouette of warmth, I dare not move, for there is a cold place one half inch in any direction. No one speaks to me or asks how I feel. In an hour or two, my mother comes. Her hands are large and rough, and when she rubs the Vic salve on my chest, I am rigid with pain. She takes two fingers full of it at a time and massages my chest until I am faint. Just when I think I will tip over into a scream, she scoops out a little of the salve on her forefinger and puts it in my mouth, telling me to swallow. A hot flannel is wrapped around my neck and chest. I am covered up with heavy quilts in order to sweat, which I do promptly. Later, I throw up, and my mother says, What did you puke on the bedclothes for? Don't you have sense enough to hold your head out the bed? Now look what you did. You think I got time for nothing but washing up your puke? The puke swaddles down the pillow onto the sheet, green-gray, with flecks of orange. It moves like the insides of an uncooked egg, stubbornly clinging to its own mass refusing to break up and be removed. How, I wonder, can it be so neat and nasty at the same time?
My mother's voice drones on. She's not talking to me. She is talking to the puke, but she's calling it my name, Claudia. She wipes it up as best she can and puts a scratchy towel over the large, wet place. I lie down again. The rags have fallen from the window crack, and the air is cold. I dare not call her back, and am reluctant to leave my warmth. My mother's anger humiliates me. Her words chafe my cheeks, and I am crying. I do not know that she is not angry at me, but at my sickness. I believe she despises my weakness for letting the sickness take hold. By and by, I will not get sick. I will refuse to. But for now, I am crying. I know I'm making more snot, but I can't stop. My sister comes in. Her eyes are full of sorrow. She sings to me. When the deep purple falls over sleepy garden walls, someone thinks of me. I doze, thinking of plums, walls, and someone. But was it really like that, as painful as I remember? Only mildly. Or rather, it was a productive and fructifying pain. Love, thick and dark as alga syrup, eased up into that cracked window. And I could smell it, taste it, sweet, musty, with an edge of wintergreen in its base, everywhere in that house. It stuck along with my tongue to the frosted window panes. It coated my chest along with the salve, and when the flannel came undone in my sleep, the clear, sharp curves of air outlined its presence on my throat, and in the night, when my coughing was dry and tough, feet padded into the room, hands repinned the flannel, readjusted the quilt, and rested a moment on my forehead. So when I think of autumn, I think of somebody with hands who does not want me to die. It was autumn, too, when Mr. Henry came. Our rumor. Our rumor. The words ballooned from the lips and hovered about our heads, silent, separate, and pleasantly mysterious. My mother was all ease and satisfaction in discussing his coming. You know him, she said to her friends. Henry Washington. He's been living over there with Miss Della Jones on 13th Street, but she's too addled now to keep up, so he's looking for another place. Oh, yes. Her friends do not hide their curiosity. I've been wondering how long he was going to stay up there with her. They say she's real bad off. Don't know who he is half the time and nobody else. Well, that old crazy nigger she married up with didn't help her head none. Did you hear what he told folks when he left her? Uh-uh, what? Well, he run off with that trifling Peggy from Elyria, you know? One of old slack Bessie's girls? That's the one. Well, somebody asked him why he left a nice, good churchwoman like Della for that heifer. You know, Della always did keep a good house. And he said the honest-to-God real reason was he couldn't take no more of that violet water 
Della Jones used. Said he wanted a woman to smell like a woman. Said Della was just too clean for him. Oh, dog. Ain't that nasty? You telling me? What kind of reasoning is that? No kind. Some men just dogs. Is that what give her them strokes? Must have helped. But you know, none of them girls wasn't too bright. Remember that grinning Hattie? She was never right. And their Aunt Julia still trotting up and down 16th Street, talking to herself. Didn't she get put away? No, County wouldn't take her. Said she wasn't harming anybody. Well, she's harming me. You want something to scare the living shit out of you? You get up at 5.30 in the morning like I do and see that old hag floating by in that bonnet. Have mercy. They laugh. Frida and I are washing mason jars. We do not hear their words, but with grown-ups, we listen to and watch out for their voices. Well, I hope don't nobody let me roam around like that when I get senile. It's a shame. What they gonna do about Della? Don't she have no people? Her sister's coming up from North Carolina to look after her. I expect she wants to get a hold of Della's house. Oh, come on, that's a evil thought, if ever I heard one. What you want to bet? Henry Washington said that sister ain't seen Della in 15 years. I kind of thought Henry would marry her one of these days. That old woman? Well, Henry ain't no chicken. Nobody ain't no buzzard either. He ever been married to anybody? No. How come? Somebody cut it off? He's just picky. He ain't picky. You see anything around here you'd marry? Well, no. He's just sensible. A steady worker with quiet ways. I hope it works out all right. It will. How much you charging? Five dollars every two weeks. That'll be a big help to you. I'll say. Their conversation is like a gently wicked dance. Sound meets sound, curtsies, shimmies, and retires. Another sound enters but is upstaged by still another. The two circle each other and stop. Sometimes their words move in lofty spirals. Other times they take strident leaps and all of it is punctuated with warm-pulsed laughter, like the throb of a heart made of jelly. The edge, the curl, the thrust of their emotions is always clear to freedom me. We do not, cannot know the meanings of all their words, for we are nine and ten years old. So we watch their faces, their hands, their feet, and listen for truth in timber. So when Mr. Henry arrived on a Saturday night, we smelled him. He smelled wonderful, like trees and lemon vanishing cream and new Nile hair oil and flecks of sin sin. He smiled a lot, showing small, even teeth with a friendly gap in the middle. Frida and I were not introduced to him, merely pointed out, like, here's the bathroom, the clothes closet is here, and these are my kids, Frida and Claudia. Watch out for this window. It don't open all the way. We looked sideways at him, saying nothing and expecting him to say nothing, just to nod, as he had done at the clothes closet. 
acknowledging our existence. To our surprise, he spoke to us. Hello there, you must be Greta Garbo, and you must be Ginger Rogers. We giggled. Even my father was startled into a smile. Want a penny? He held out a shiny coin to us. Frida lowered her head, too pleased to answer. I reached for it. He snapped his thumb and forefinger, and the penny disappeared. Our shock was laced with delight. We searched all over him, poking our fingers into his socks, looking up the inside back of his coat. If happiness is anticipation with certainty, we were happy. And while we waited for the coin to reappear, we knew we were amusing Mama and Daddy. Daddy was smiling, and Mama's eyes went soft as they followed our hands wandering over Mr. Henry's body. We loved him. Even after what came later, there was no bitterness in our memory of him. She slept in the bed with us, Frida on the outside because she's brave. It never occurs to her that if in her sleep her hand hangs over the edge of the bed, something will crawl out from under it and bite her fingers off. I sleep near the wall because that thought has occurred to me. Piccola, therefore, had to sleep in the middle. Mama told us two days earlier that a case was coming, a girl who had no place to go. The county had placed her in our house for a few days until they could decide what to do, or, more precisely, until the family was reunited. We were to be nice to her and not fight. Mama didn't know what got into people, but that old dog, Breedlove, had burned up his house, gone upside his wife's head, and everybody as a result was outdoors. Outdoors, we knew, was the real terror of life. The threat of being outdoors surfaced frequently in those days. Every possibility of excess was curtailed with it. If somebody ate too much, he could end up outdoors. If somebody used too much coal, he could end up outdoors. People could gamble themselves outdoors, drink themselves outdoors. Sometimes mothers put their sons outdoors. And when that happened, regardless of what the son had done, all sympathy was with him. He was outdoors, and his own flesh had done it. To be put outdoors by a landlord was one thing, unfortunate, but an aspect of life over which you had no control, since you could not control your income. But to be slack enough to put oneself outdoors, or heartless enough to put one's own kin outdoors, that was criminal. There's a difference between being put out and being put outdoors. If you're put out, you go somewhere else. If you are outdoors, there is no place to go. The distinction was subtle but final. Outdoors was the end of something, an irrevocable physical fact defining and complementing our metaphysical condition. Being a minority in both caste and class, we moved about anyway on the hem of life, 
struggling to consolidate our weaknesses and hang on, or to creep singly up into the major folds of the garment. Our peripheral existence, however, was something we had learned to deal with, probably because it was abstract. But the concreteness of being outdoors was another matter, like the difference between the concept of death and being, in fact, dead. Dead doesn't change, and outdoors is here to stay. Knowing that there was such a thing as outdoors bred in us a hunger for property, for ownership, the firm possession of a yard, a porch, a grape arbor. Property black people spent all their energies, all their love on their nests. Like frenzied, desperate birds, they overdecorated everything, fussed and fidgeted over their hard-won homes, canned, jellied, and preserved all summer to fill the cupboards and shelves. They painted, picked, and poked at every corner of their houses. And these houses loomed like hothouse flowers among the rows of weeds that were rented houses. Renting blacks cast furtive glances at these owned yards and porches and made firmer commitments to buy themselves some nice little old place. In the meantime, they saved and scratched and piled away what they could in the rented hovels, looking forward to the day of property. Charlie Breedlove, then, a renting black, having put his family outdoors, had catapulted himself beyond the reaches of human consideration. He had joined the animals, was indeed an old dog, a snake, a ratty nigger. Mrs. Breedlove was staying with the woman she worked for. The boy, Sammy, was with some other family and Piccolo was to stay with us. Charlie was in jail. She came with nothing, no little paper bag with the other dress or a nightgown or two pair of whitish cotton bloomers. She just appeared with a white woman and sat down. We had fun in those few days. Piccolo was with us. Frida and I stopped fighting each other and concentrated on our guest trying hard to keep her from feeling outdoors. When we discovered that she clearly did not want to dominate us, we liked her. She laughed when I clowned for her and smiled and accepted gracefully the food gifts my sister gave her. Would you like some graham crackers? I don't care. Frida brought her four graham crackers on a saucer and some milk in a blue-and-white Shirley Temple cup. She was a long time with the milk and gazed fondly at the silhouette of Shirley Temple's dimpled face. Frida and she had a loving conversation about how cute Shirley Temple was. I couldn't join them in their adoration because I hated Shirley. Not because she was cute, but because she danced with Bojangles, who was my friend my uncle, my daddy, and who ought to have been soft-showing it and chuckling with me. Instead, he was enjoying, sharing, giving a lovely dance thing with one of those little white girls whose socks never slid down under their heels. So I said, I like Jane Withers. 
they gave me a puzzled look, decided I was incomprehensible, and continued their reminiscing about old, squint-eyed Shirley. Younger than both Frida and Piccola, I had not yet arrived at the turning point in the development of my psyche which would allow me to love her. What I felt at that time was unsullied hatred. But before that, I had felt a stranger, more frightening thing than hatred for all the Shirley Temples of the world. It had begun with Christmas and the gift of dolls. The big, the special, the loving gift was always a big, blue-eyed baby doll. From the clucking sounds of adults, I knew that the doll represented what they thought was my fondest wish. I was bemused with the thing itself and the way it looked. What was I supposed to do with it? Pretend I was its mother? I had no interest in babies or the concept of motherhood. I was interested only in humans my own age and size and could not generate any enthusiasm at the prospect of being a mother. Motherhood was old age and other remote possibilities. I learned quickly, however, what I was expected to do with the doll. Rock it, fabricate storied situations around it, even sleep with it. Picture books were full of little girls sleeping with their dolls, Raggedy Ann dolls usually, but they were out of the question. I was physically revolted by and secretly frightened of those round, moronic eyes, the pancake face, and orange worm's hair. The other dolls, which were supposed to bring me great pleasure, succeeded in doing quite the opposite. When I took it to bed, its hard, unyielding limbs resisted my flesh. The tapered fingertips on those dimpled hands scratched. If, in sleep, I turned, the bone-cold head collided with my own. It was a most uncomfortable, patently aggressive sleeping companion. To hold it was no more rewarding. The starched gauze or lace on the cotton dress irritated any embrace. I had only one desire, to dismember it, to see of what it was made, to discover the dearness, to find the beauty, the desirability that had escaped me, but apparently only me. Adults, older girls, shops, magazines, newspapers, window signs, all the world had agreed that a blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll was what every girl child treasured. Here they said, this is beautiful, and if you are on this day worthy, you may have it. I fingered the face, wondering at the single-stroke eyebrows, picked at the pearly teeth, stuck like two piano keys between red bowline lips, traced the turned-up nose, poked the glassy blue eyeballs, twisted the yellow hair. I could not love it, but I could examine it to see what it was that all the world said was lovable. Break off the tiny fingers, bend the flat feet, loosen the hair, twist the head around, and the thing made one sound. A sound, they said, was the sweet and plaintive cry, Mama, but which sounded to me like the bleat of a dying lamb, or more precisely, our icebox door opening on rusty hinges in July.
We moved the cold and stupid eyeball, and it would still bleed. Ah. Take off the head. Shake out the sawdust. Crack the back against the brass bed rail. It would bleed still. The gauze back would split, and I could see the disc with six holes. The secret of the sound. A mere metal roundness. Grown people frowned and fussed. You don't know how to take care of nothing. I never had a baby doll in my whole life and used to cry my eyes out for them. Now you got one, a beautiful one, and you tear it up. What's the matter with you? How strong was their outrage? Tears threatened to erase the aloofness of their authority. The emotion of years of unfulfilled longing preened in their voices. I did not know why I destroyed those dolls, but I did know that nobody ever asked me what I wanted for Christmas. Had any adult with the power to fulfill my desires taken me seriously and asked me what I wanted, they would have known that I did not want to have anything to own or to possess any object. I wanted rather to feel something on Christmas Day. The real question would have been, Dear Claudia, what experience would you like on Christmas? I could have spoken up. I want to sit on the low stool in Big Mama's kitchen with my lap full of lilacs and listen to Big Papa play his violin for me alone. The lowness of the stool made for my body, the security and warmth of Big Mama's kitchen, the smell of the lilacs, the sound of the music, and since it would be good, to have all of my senses engaged, the taste of a peach, perhaps, afterward. Instead, I tasted and smelled the acridness of tin plates and cups designed for tea parties that bored me. Instead, I looked with loathing on new dresses that required a hateful bath in a galvanized zinc tub before wearing. Slipping around on the zinc, no time to play or soak, for the water chilled too fast. No time to enjoy one's nakedness, only time to make curtains of soapy water careen down between the legs. Then the scratchy towels and the dreadful and humiliating absence of dirt. The irritable, unimaginative cleanliness. Gone the ink marks from legs and face. All my creations and accumulations of the day gone and replaced by goose pimples. I destroyed white baby dolls. But the dismembering of dolls was not the true horror. The truly horrifying thing was the transference of the same impulses to little white girls. The indifference with which I could have axed them was shaken only by my desire to do so to discover what eluded me, the secret of the magic they weaved on others. What made people look at them and say, Oh, but not for me. The eye slide of black women as they approach them on the street and the possessive gentleness of their touch as they handle them. If I pinch them, their eyes, unlike the crazed glint of the baby doll's eyes, would fold in pain and their cry would not be the sound of an icebox door, but a fascinating cry of pain. 
when I learned how repulsive this disinterested violence was, that it was repulsive because it was disinterested, my shame floundered about for refuge. The best hiding place was love. Thus, the conversion from pristine sadism to fabricated hatred to fraudulent love. It was a small step to Shirley Temple. I learned much later to worship her, just as I learned to delight in cleanliness, knowing even as I learned that the change was adjustment without improvement. Three quarts of milk? That's what was in that icebox yesterday. Three whole quarts. Now they ain't none, not a drop. I don't mind folks coming in and getting what they want. But three quarts of milk? What the devil does anybody need with three quarts of milk? The folks my mother was referring to was Piccolo. The three of us, Piccolo, Frida, and I, listened to her downstairs in the kitchen, fussing about the amount of milk Piccolo had drunk. We knew she was fond of the Shirley Temple cup and took every opportunity to drink milk out of it, just to handle and see sweet Shirley's face. My mother knew that Frida and I hated milk and assumed Piccola drank it out of greediness. It was certainly not for us to dispute her. We didn't initiate talk with grown-ups. We answered their questions. Ashamed of the insults that were being heaped on our friend, we just sat there. I picked toe jam. Frida cleaned her fingernails with her teeth, and Piccola finger-traced some scars on her knee, her head cocked to one side. My mother's fussing soliloquies always irritated and depressed us. They were interminable, insulting, and although indirect, Mama never named anybody, just talked about folks and some people, extremely painful in their thrust. She would go on like that for hours, connecting one offense to another, until all of the things that chagrined her were spewed out. Then, having told everybody and everything off, she would burst into song and sing the rest of the day. But it was such a long time before the singing part came. In the meantime, our stomachs jellying and our necks burning, we listened, avoided each other's eyes, and picked toe jam or whatever. I don't know what I'm supposed to be running here. A charity ward, I guess? Time for me to get out of the given line and get in the getting line. I guess I ain't supposed to have nothing. I'm supposed to end up in the poorhouse. Look like nothing I do is going to keep me out of there. Folks just spend all their time trying to figure out ways to send me to the poorhouse. I got about as much business with a another mouth to feed as a cat has with side pockets as if I don't have trouble enough trying to feed my own and keep out the poorhouse. Now I got something else in here that's just going to drink me on in there. Well, no, she ain't. Not long as I got strength in my body and a tongue in my head. There's a limit to everything. I ain't got nothing to just throw away. Don't nobody need three quarts of milk. Henry Ford don't need three quarts of milk. That's just downright sinful. I'm willing to do what I can for folks. Can't nobody say I ain't, but this has got to stop, and I'm just the one to stop it. Bible say, watch as well as pray. Folks just 
dump their children off on you and go on about their business. Ain't nobody even peeped in here to see whether that child has a loaf of bread. Looked like they would just peep in to see whether I had a loaf of bread to give her, but no, nah, that thought don't cross their mind. That old trifling Charlie been out of jail two whole days and ain't been in here yet to see if his own child was live or dead. She could be dead for all he know, and that mama neither. What kind of something is that? When mama got around to Henry Ford and all those people who didn't care whether she had a loaf of bread, it was time to go. We wanted to miss the part about Roosevelt and the CCC camps. Frida got up and started down the stairs. Picola and I followed, making a wide arc to avoid the kitchen doorway. We sat on the steps of the porch, where my mother's words could reach us only in spurts. It was a lonesome Saturday. The house smelled of Fell's naphtha and the sharp odor of mustard greens cooking. Saturdays were lonesome, fussy, soapy days, second in misery, only to those tight, starchy, cough-drop Sundays, so full of don'ts and set-yourself-downs. If my mother was in a singing mood, it wasn't so bad. She would sing about hard times, bad times, and somebody done gone and left me times. But her voice was so sweet, and her singing eyes so melty, I found myself longing for those hard times, yearning to be grown without a thin dime to my name. I looked forward to the delicious time when my man would leave me, when I would hate to see that evening sun go down, because then I would know my man has left this town. Misery, colored by the greens and blues in my mother's voice, took all of the grief out of the words and left me with a conviction that pain was not only endurable, it was sweet. But without song, those Saturdays sat on my head like a cold scuttle. And if Mama was fussing as she was now, it was like somebody throwing stones at it. And here I am, poor as a bowl of yakmi. What do they think I am? Some kind of sandy claws? Well, they can just take their stocking down, cause it ain't Christmas. We fidgeted. Let's do something, Frida said. What do you want to do, I asked. I don't know, nothing. Frida stared at the tops of the trees. Piccola looked at her feet. You want to go up to Mr. Henry's room and look at his girly magazines? Frida made an ugly face. She didn't like to look at dirty pictures. Well, I continued, we could look at his Bible. That's pretty. Frida sucked her teeth and made a f sound with her lips. Okay, then. We could go thread needles for the half-blind lady. She'll give us a penny. Frida snorted. Her eyes looked like snot. I don't feel like looking at them. What do you want to do, Piccola? I don't care, she said. Anything you want. I had another idea. We could go up the alley and see what's in the trash cans. Too cold, said Frida. 
She was bored and irritable. I know. We could make some fudge. Are you kidding? With Mama in there fussing? When she starts fussing at the walls, you know she's going to be at it all day. She wouldn't even let us. Well, let's go over to the Greek hotel and listen to them cuss. Oh, who wants to do that? Besides, they say the same old words all the time. My supply of ideas exhausted, I began to concentrate on the white spots on my fingernails. The total signified the number of boyfriends I would have. Seven. Mama's soliloquy slid into the silence. Bible say feed the hungry, that's fine, that's all right. But I ain't feed no elephants. Anybody need three quarts of milk to live, need to get out of here. They in the wrong place. What is this? Some kind of dairy farm? Suddenly, Picola bolted straight up, her eyes wide with terror. A whinnying sound came from her mouth. What's the matter with you? Frida stood up, too. Then we both looked where Piccola was staring. Blood was running down her legs. Some drops were on the steps. I leaped up. Hey, you cut yourself? Look, it's all over your dress. A brownish-red stain discolored the back of her dress. She kept whinnying, standing with her legs far apart. Frida said, Oh, Lordy, I know. I know what that is. What? Piccola's fingers went to her mouth. That's ministrating. What's that? You know. Am I going to die, she asked. No, you won't die. It just means you can have a baby. What? How do you know? I was sick and tired of Frida knowing everything. Mildred told me, and Mama too. I don't believe it. You don't have to, dummy. Look, wait here. Sit down, Piccola, right here. Frida was all authority and zest. And you, she said to me, you go get some water. Water? Yes, stupid, water. And be quiet, or Mama will hear you. Piccola sat down again, a little less fear in her eyes. I went into the kitchen. What you want, girl? Mama was rinsing curtains in the sink. Some water, ma'am? Right where I'm working, naturally. Well, get a glass. Not no clean one, neither. Use that jar. I got a mason jar and filled it with water from the faucet. It seemed a long time filling. Don't nobody never want nothing till they see me at the sink. Then everybody got to drink water. When the jar was full, I moved to leave the room. Where are you going? Outside. Drink that water right here. I ain't gonna break nothing. You don't know what you're going to do. Yes, ma'am, I do. Let me take it out. I won't spill none. You bet not. I got to the porch and stood there with the mason jar of water. Piccola was crying. What you crying for? Does it hurt? She shook her head. Then stop slinging snot. Frida opened the back door. She had something tucked in her blouse. She looked at me in amazement and pointed to the jar. What's that supposed to do? You told me. You said get some water. Not a little old jar full. Lots of water. To scrub the steps with, dumbbell. How was I supposed to know? Yeah, how was you? Come on. 
She pulled Picola up by the arm. Let's go back here. They headed for the side of the house, where the bushes were thick. Hey, what about me? I want to go. Shut up, Frida Stage whispered. Mama will hear you. You wash the steps. They disappeared around the corner of the house. I was going to miss something. Again. Here was something important, and I had to stay behind and not see any of it. I poured the water on the steps, sloshed it with my shoe, and ran to join them. Frida was on her knees. A white rectangle of cotton was near her on the ground. She was pulling Picola's pants off. Come on, step out of them. She managed to get the soiled pants down and flung them at me. Here, what am I supposed to do with these? Bury them, moron. Frida told Picola to hold the cotton thing between her legs. How's she gonna walk like that, I asked. Frida didn't answer. Instead, she took two safety pins from the hem of her skirt and began to pin the ends of the napkin to Picola's dress. I picked up the pants with two fingers and looked about for something to dig a hole with. A rustling noise in the bushes startled me, and turning toward it, I saw a pair of fascinated eyes and a doe-white face. Rosemary was watching us. I grabbed for her face and succeeded in scratching her nose. She screamed and jumped back. Mrs. McTeer, Mrs. McTeer, Rosemary hollered. Frida and Claudia are out here playing nasty. Mrs. McTeer? Mama opened the window and looked down at us. What? They're playing nasty, Mrs. McTeer. Look, and Claudia hit me, cause I seen them. Mama slammed the window shut and came running out the back door. What you all doing? Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Playing nasty, huh? She reached into the bushes and pulled off a switch. I'd rather raise pigs than some nasty girls. Least I can slaughter them. We began to shriek. No, Mama. No, ma'am. We wasn't. She's a liar. No, ma'am. Mama. No, ma'am. Mama. Mama grabbed Frida by the shoulder, turned her around, and gave her three or four stinging cuts on her legs. Gonna be nasty, huh? No, you ain't. Frida was destroyed. Whippings wounded and insulted her. Mama looked at Picola. You too, she said. Child of mine or not. She grabbed Picola and spun her around. The safety pin snapped open on one end of the napkin, and Mama saw it fall from under her dress. The switch hovered in the air while Mama blinked. What the devil is going on here? Frida was sobbing. I, next in line, began to explain. She was bleeding. We was just trying to stop the blood. Mama looked at Frida for verification. Frida nodded. She's ministrating. We was just helping. Mama released Picola and stood looking at her. Then she pulled both of them toward her, their heads against her stomach. Her eyes were sorry. All right, all right. Now stop crying, I didn't know. Come on now, get on in the house. Go on home, Rosemary. The show is over. 
We trooped in, Frida sobbing quietly, Picola carrying a white tail, me carrying the little girl gonda woman pants. Mama led us to the bathroom. She prodded Picola inside and taking the underwear from me, told us to stay out. We could hear water running in the bathtub. You think she's going to drown her? Oh, Claudia, you're so dumb. She's just going to wash her clothes and all. Should we beat up Rosemary? No, leave her alone. The water gushed, and over its gushing, we could hear the music of my mother's laughter. That night, in bed, the three of us lay still. We were full of awe and respect for Piccola, lying next to a real person who was really ministrating was somehow sacred. She was different from us now, grown-up-like. She herself felt the distance, but refused to lord it over us. After a long while, she spoke very softly. Is it true that I can have a baby now? Sure, said Frida drowsily. Sure you can. But how? Her voice was hollow with wonder. Oh, said Frida. Somebody has to love you. Oh. There was a long pause in which Picola and I thought this over. It would involve, I suppose, my man, who before leaving me would love me. But there weren't any babies in the songs my mother sang. Maybe that's why the women were sad. The men left before they could make a baby. Then Picola asked a question that had never entered my mind. How do you do that? I mean, how do you get somebody to love you? But Frida was asleep, and I didn't know. Here is the house. It is green and white, has a red door. It is very pretty. It is very pretty, pretty, pretty. There is an abandoned store on the southeast corner of Broadway and 35th Street in Lorain, Ohio. It does not recede into its background of leaden sky, nor harmonize with the gray frame houses and black telephone poles around it. Rather, it foists itself on the eye of the passerby in a manner that is both irritating and melancholy. Visitors who drive to this tiny town Wonder why it has not been torn down, while pedestrians, who are residents of the neighborhood, simply look away when they pass it. At one time, when the building housed a pizza parlor, people saw only slow-footed teenaged boys huddled about the corner. These young boys met there to feel their groins, smoke cigarettes, and plan mild outrages. The smoke from their cigarettes they inhaled deeply, forcing it to fill their lungs, their hearts, their thighs, and keep at bay the shiveriness, the energy of their youth. They moved slowly, 
laughed slowly, but flicked the ashes from their cigarettes too quickly too often and exposed themselves to those who were interested as novices to the habit. But long before the sound of their lowing and the sight of their preening, the building was leased to an Hungarian baker, modestly famous for his brioche and poppy seed rolls. Earlier than that, there was a real estate office there, and even before that, some gypsies used it as a base of operations. The gypsy family gave the large plate-glass window as much distinction and character as it ever had. The girls of the family took turns sitting between yards of velvet draperies and oriental rugs hanging at the windows. They looked out and occasionally smiled or winked or beckoned, only occasionally. Mostly they looked, their elaborate dresses, long-sleeved and long-skirted, hiding the nakedness that stood in their eyes. So fluid has the population in that area been that probably no one remembers longer, longer ago, before the time of the gypsies and the time of the teenagers, when the breed loves lived there, nestled together in the storefront, festering together in the debris of a realtor's whim. They slipped in and out of the box of peeling gray, making no stir in the neighborhood, no sound in the labor force, and no wave in the mayor's office. Each member of the family in his own cell of consciousness, each making his own patchwork quilt of reality, collecting fragments of experience here, pieces of information there, from the tiny impressions gleaned from one another, they created a sense of belonging and tried to make do with the way they found each other. The plan of the living quarters was as unimaginative as a first-generation Greek landlord could contrive it to be. The large store area was partitioned into two rooms by beaver board planks that did not reach to the ceiling. There was a living room, which the family called the front room, and the bedroom, where all the living was done. In the front room were two sofas, an upright piano, and a tiny artificial Christmas tree, which had been there decorated and dust-laden for two years. The bedroom had three beds, a narrow iron bed for Sammy, 14 years old, another for Picola, 11 years old, and a double bed for Charlie, and Mrs. Breedlove. In the center of the bedroom, for the even distribution of heat, stood a cold stove. Trunks, chairs, a small end table, and a cardboard wardrobe closet were placed around the walls. The kitchen was in the back of this apartment, a separate room. There were no bath facilities, only a toilet bowl, inaccessible to the eye, if not the ear, of the tenants. There's nothing more to say about the furnishings. They were anything but describable, having been conceived, manufactured, shipped, 
afflicted soul in various states of thoughtlessness, greed, and indifference. The furniture had aged without ever having become familiar. People had owned it, but never known it. No one had lost a penny or a brooch under the cushions of either sofa and remembered the place and the time of the loss or the finding. No one had clucked and said, but I had it just a minute ago. I was sitting right there talking to, or here it is. It must have slipped down while I was feeding the baby. No one had given birth in one of the beds or remembered with fondness the peeled paint places, because that's what the baby, when he learned to pull himself up, used to pick loose. No thrifty child had tucked a wad of gum under the table. No happy drunk, a friend of the family, with a fat neck, unmarried, you know, but God, how he eats, had sat at the piano and played You Are My Sunshine. No young girl had stared at the tiny Christmas tree and remembered when she had decorated it or wondered if that blue ball was going to hold or if he would ever come back to see it. There were no memories among those pieces, certainly no memories to be cherished. Occasionally an item provoked a physical reaction, an increase of acid irritation in the upper intestinal tract, a light flush of perspiration at the back of the neck as circumstances surrounding the piece of furniture were recalled. The sofa, for example. It had been purchased new, but the fabric had split straight across the back by the time it was delivered. The store would not take the responsibility. Look here, buddy. It was okay when I put it on the truck. The store can't do anything about it once it's on the truck. Listerine and lucky strike breath. But I don't want no tour couch if it is bought new, pleading eyes and tightened testicles. Tough shit, buddy. You're tough shit. You could hate a sofa, of course. That is, if you could hate a sofa. But didn't matter. You still had to get together $4.80 a month. If you had to pay $4.80 a month for a sofa that started off split, no good, and humiliating, you couldn't take any joy in owning it. And the joylessness stank, pervading everything. The stink of it kept you from painting the beaverboard walls, from getting a matching piece of material for the chair, even from sewing up the split, which became a gash, which became a gaping chasm that exposed the cheap frame and cheaper upholstery. It withheld the refreshment into sleep, slept on it. It imposed a furtiveness on the loving done on it, like a sore tooth that is not content to throb in isolation, but must diffuse its own pain to other parts of the body, making breathing difficult, vision limited, nerves unsettled. So a hated piece of furniture produces a fretful malaise that asserts itself throughout the house 
and limits the delight of things not related to it. The only living thing in the Breedlove's house was the coal stove, which lived independently of everything and everyone, its fire being out, banked, or up at its own discretion, in spite of the fact that the family fed it and knew all the details of its regimen. Sprinkle, do not dump, not too much. The fire seemed to live, go down, or die, according to its own schemata. In the morning, however, it always saw fit to die. Here is the family, mother, father, Dick and Jane. They live in the green and white house. They are very... The Breedloves did not live in a storefront because they were having temporary difficulty adjusting to the cutbacks at the plant. They lived there because they were poor and black, and they stayed there because they believed they were ugly. Although their poverty was traditional and stultifying, it was not unique, but their ugliness was unique. No one could have convinced them that they were not relentlessly and aggressively ugly, except for the father, Charlie, whose ugliness, the result of despair, dissipation, and violence directed toward petty things and weak people, was behavior. The rest of the family, Mrs. Breedlove, Sammy Breedlove, and Picola Breedlove, wore their ugliness, put it on, so to speak, although it did not belong to them. The eyes, the small eyes set closely together, under narrow foreheads, the low, irregular hairlines, which seemed even more irregular in contrast to the straight, heavy eyebrows which nearly met, keen but crooked noses with insolent nostrils. They had high cheekbones and their ears turned forward, shapely lips which called attention not to themselves, but to the rest of the face. You looked at them and wondered why they were so ugly. You looked closely and could not find the source. Then you realized that it came from conviction, their conviction. It was as though some mysterious, all-knowing master had given each one a cloak of ugliness to wear, and they had each accepted it without question. The master had said, You are ugly people. They had looked about themselves, saw nothing to contradict the statement, saw, in fact, support for it, leaning at them from every billboard, every movie, every glance. Yes, they had said, You're right. And they took the ugliness in their hands, threw it as a mantle over them, and went about the world with it, dealing with it each according to his way. Mrs. Breedlove handled hers as an actor does a prop for the articulation of character, for support of a role she frequently imagined was hers, martyrdom. Sammy used his as a weapon 
to cause others pain. He adjusted his behavior to it, chose his companions on the basis of it, people who could be fascinated, even intimidated by it. And Piccola, she hid behind hers, concealed, veiled, eclipsed, peeping out from behind the shroud very seldom, and then only to yearn for the return of her mask. This family, on a Saturday morning in October, began one by one to stir out of their dreams of affluence and vengeance into the anonymous misery of their storefront.